I always tell people this, even if you have a small list, don't be afraid to reach out to newsletters with a massive list. I've done one with Morning Brew, who has like 2.5 million people. Obviously, I don't have that, but my draw is they're super engaged. The open rate and the click-through rate is extremely high. They they, they actually like click on the links and they, they talk with me. So, and, and they're a high quality audience, right? So because of my background, a lot of them are investors, journalists, entrepreneurs. So if you want exposure to that audience, let me know. And that works for me really well. This conversation is led by the founder of Bleacher Report, Dave Nemetz, featuring Paulina Morinova from The Profile Dossier, Jonathan Hunt from Complex, and Brian Morisi from Digital Media. And the lessons compressed in this conversation are wide-ranging. And if there's anything you need to learn about building an audience and content-led growth, this is it. It was originally held on Clubhouse for Dave's awesome show, The Audience Builders. And I basically came across a very summarized version of this particular episode on Twitter. And as soon as I saw it, I reached out to Dave and this was two days back and I asked him if I could post that entire conversation on Steal My Marketing and here we are. And after you've gone through this episode, I highly recommend you go to Dave Nemeth's personal blog. It's D-A-V-E-N-E-M-E-T-Z.com. Go to the essays section and just start reading like any random article and you will understand why Dave has been so successful in the media business. And the essays that I most enjoyed were those related to the very early days of Bleacher Report because to me it was super interesting to go back into those days and learn from the lessons that Dave and his team had learned while growing Bleacher Report. And uh, yeah, enjoy this conversation. Paulina, I've been following the profile and I want to I wanna steal some, some audience building tips from you. When I started the profile in 2017, I knew I had a full-time job, obviously. So I was like, I can't, if I'm going to do this, obviously it's not going to be daily. I don't have time for that, but it makes sense if I do it like once a week and I put together some of the most interesting profiles I read that week and publish it, send it to people on Sunday because Sunday is the weekend. People probably have time to read long form. So for me, I thankfully accidentally hit on the fact that early on, it's so much easier to speed up than it is to slow down in terms of finding a good cadence. So it's easier to say, hey, guys, I'm going to publish this newsletter uh, every month. And then over time, if you have more time, you can speed it up to once a week or once a day. But it's it's a problem at least I believe, if you start with like, you you come out hot, you go, I'm going to start publishing every day. You guys should follow me. I'll have all this great content. And then you realize it's too much or you go on vacation or you do something and you can't keep up with the cadence. Therefore, you have to move it to once a week or once a month. The biggest, biggest thing I've learned is that in terms of growing any sort of community or audience, is that consistency equals trust. You cannot have trust with your readers if you are not consistent with the product. And that's an email newsletter. That's I buy a product, a physical product from you and you send it to me reliably. It's all of those things. And 
Brian, recently, I, I know you wrote something about consistency, and I wholeheartedly agree. And in terms of like actually growing the readership, I literally started with my mom and her friends. Like it was a very small list for a very long time. It took me two years to get to my first 5,000 subscribers, like two full years. But but it, I, I looked in the last two months, I added 5,000. It's still not that fast, but it's like, it, it's, it's definitely an improvement. So what I started with was, I started with newsletter swaps. So the first one I did was with a newsletter called 1440. And I said, hey, I know you have a lot of subscribers. I don't, at the time I only had 5,000. And I said, let's do a, a link swap. Like I genuinely enjoy your newsletter. I hope you enjoy mine. We can, I think we have like-minded audiences. Let's do a link swap, like costs you nothing, costs me nothing. And to get exposure to each other's audiences. And that worked really well for me. And, and I always tell people this, even if you have a small list, don't be afraid to reach out to newsletters with a massive list. I've done one with Morning Brew, who has like 2.5 million people. Obviously, I don't have that. But my draw is they're super engaged. The open rate and the click-through rate is extremely high. They, they, they actually like click on the links and they, they talk with me. So, and, and they're a high quality audience, right? So because of my background, a lot of them are investors, journalists, entrepreneurs. So if you want exposure to that audience, let me know. And that works for me really well. The other thing that I, I've, I've had success with is guest posts and interviews with really interesting people. Like for example, Brandon Stanton, who never does press. He never does media interviews. He's the creator of Humans of New York. I literally, after years of trying to get him to do an interview with me, he finally agreed. And that has, by finding somebody like that, who doesn't do a ton of press, when people search for him or search for Humans of New York, my my interview with him comes up. And also, like, if he shares it with his audience, then people get exposed to the profile and they sign up. I've done a lot of things. Twitter threads, product hunt launch, asking people to retweet. Like, I've done it all. But I do, I do believe that there's just no substitute for high quality content because, for example, The Rock tweeted about the profile without me ever even asking for that or thinking that he would. So I think if you produce really high quality content, just it'll naturally, hopefully, get to the right people just because you never know whose eyeballs you're about to get in front of. And I think what's interesting about that too, Polina, is that like I think it also works the other way because like thinking about it through the lens complex like yeah we have a lot of scale but like whenever we're launching new products that are maybe really nascent like we can also oftentimes barter with other kind of like like-minded organizations to help reach like high quality audiences that maybe like might not be appropriate for the product that we're launching for whatever reason be it like a b2b product or maybe it's a completely brand new category that we don't necessarily have a big foothold in like a good example of that is like last year we launched a primary research division and that's like a panel of 30,000 young people we pull them it helps inform new business lines for us we do it on behalf of clients it helps inform new content etc cetera, etc cetera. but it was completely new to us and a lot of times whenever we were talking about it out in the market people would kind of scratch their head and say like why is complex networks doing this but in partnering with our friends over at like PSFK, like Pierce Fox, right? Like he already has a business there that's been doing this for a long time. 
it lended credibility to a new product that we didn't necessarily already have. We did a research around mental health, and so we partnered with the Ed Foundation. Like they also don't necessarily have the same kind of scale as like complex networks, but where they lack the scale, they have the authority in that mental health space and the quality audience that we were trying to target. And so I think that's a really good point in that it can sort of go both ways. If you're, you know, an organization that has tens of millions of people that come to its site or hundreds of millions of people they'll follow on social channels, there's still opportunity for you to partner with smaller organizations to help introduce what you're trying to launch to the most appropriate audience. Exactly. That's a really good example. Yeah. And too, Paulina, when you, that's, that's really impressive that you were able to put together those kind of barter deals, like with the morning brew with that kind of, yeah, that, that audience disparity, like what, what were the mechanics of those? Yeah. And, and it's important to note that I was super transparent with them about my numbers. Like I wasn't trying to inflate anything because you can only inflate so much. They have 2.5 million subscribers. So, so basically I approached it as like, Hey, like these are really, really high quality people. They trust me. I don't, I don't promote like newsletters that I don't personally subscribe to or like. So I think, I think this would be really good. Exactly what Jonathan said. It, it lends credibility. It maybe introduces you to a group of people like investors, for example, that you might want to be in front of. And for example, though, as you might imagine, they included me one time and I got like 4,000 new people in one afternoon and I had to include them several times. I think it was six, six different times in order for it to be somewhat equal, even though still, I think I probably benefited a little bit more from it. But again, like I'm pretty exclusive and uh, disciplined with the, the things that I promoted the newsletter. Jonathan, I, I want to ask you, being a conflict, I know you've been at a bunch of great places and kind of a bunch of huge names in the the digital media and just the broader media space. Complex, I, in my opinion, is kind of one of the best of the best when it comes to building IP and and what what you've done with really building the brands around around all the different shows that you have. I think you get a lot of credit for it, but I, in my opinion, you don't you don't get enough. I think more I see more people talking about. Barstool and their kind of show and talent talent strategy when I feel like Complex is is really kind of the, the, the best of the best there. Uh, I'd love to just hear you talk about kind of that that strategy and, and how it how it propels the business overall. Yeah, so I think like to answer that question, it's worth sort of taking a step back 20 years when the company was founded and it was really founded with a focus on kind of covering the convergence of different aspects of culture. So the convergence of sneakers and hip hop and sports and fashion. And back then, I think there were like a lot of sort of categorical print titles that were focused on one thing or the other, but nothing that was really sort of bringing it all together. I think across the 20 years up until now, like the thing that we've been very disciplined in doing is just remaining focused. And I think what you get out of that for 20 years is you start to build up an expertise, a known credibility, but also it gives you a lot of latitude to be able to then take that and adapt it into a new business line. So a good example of that is sneakers. We've been covering sneakers for 20 years. Sneakers now for us isn't just editorial on our website, but it's a book that we launched last year it's a Netflix show that we sold in last year and launched called Sneakerheads. It's a 
weekly series uh, called Sneaker Shopping that has some of the largest cultural celebrities around uh, every single week. It's a new application that we also recently launched focused on kind of acting as like the kayak for sneakers so you can get the best price no matter where you're searching, but from this one location across all the major marketplaces, be it StockX, Go or wherever you um, typically shop. And so we sort of taken that same approach and have adapted it to kind of hot ones, which is sorry, was there an interview show where we have conversations with celebrities as they eat progressively hotter and hotter hot wings. And as you can imagine, like the conversation gets really real and really messy. But we've since taken that, that format and that concept and turned it into a hot sauce line to a show on Turner. And so it's not like we're reinventing the wheel every single time. We're just kind of taking things that we've been really focused on and have gotten really good at and then just finding new ways of squeezing as much value out of it through different formats and different mediums. And I mean, obviously some of these these shows have just blown up like hot ones, but how, yeah. I mean, how do you make the decision about where to invest in a new brand? Yeah, I think it's kind of twofold. One I would definitely say is editorial sensibility. I think it's always great to have data to inform and to identify maybe white spaces you're not thinking about and to understand consumer appetite for whatever it is you're thinking about launching. But there's something qualitatively that you can't really quantify, that data can't really drive, that is in that editorial sensibility. So whenever we are looking towards expanding into a new category or doubling down somewhere, we definitely sort of bring both of those worlds together. So a lot of it comes through primary research and quant, but a lot of it comes through our editor-in-chief, our head of content, our beat editors, our beat writers, and just sort of understanding, like, what are they seeing out there that, based on their own categorical expertise, they think might be interesting to our target audience. And so we usually use those two sort of signals to identify you know, areas of expansion or areas um, that are new for us to build into. And then we don't like to sort of just like launch something, see it for one episode, and then decide to shut it down if it doesn't work. I think there's this kind of maturation period that you really have to um, be sensitive to. Like not everything's a banger out the gate. And the same thing was with Hot Ones. Like Hot Ones was not as successful as it is now. During the first season, it took multiple seasons to grow. The same thing with sneaker shopping. So we really believe in constantly incubating, trying to find um, ways to make uh, a new format or a new medium or a new idea work. And then if for whatever reason, over the course of a season or two, you know, it just doesn't take, then there's no harm uh, in shutting it down and maybe pivoting it. Do you think about community in a different way, the way that you think about audience? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I feel like the two sort of get conflated sometimes. I mean, audience to us maybe isn't as deeply engaged or expected as community. I mean, community to us is people that have kind of bought into the religion or the idea of a product or a series that we've developed that come back to us repeatedly and sort of follow us to wherever we go. Like, not to sort of be a dead horse, but I think Hot Ones is just like a good example of that. Hot Ones has a really rabid community that either had started with us in season one and feels like they've actually contributed to its success and its growth and followed us to ComplexCon. I've got got another question for the group, just kind of more broadly looking at this creator economy. Paulina, we've talked about your decision to go solo. Brian, you as well. Would love, love, you know, just to hear anyone's thoughts on what it takes for 
someone to, for whether a writer or creator to, to go solo and to kind of ha- be, be out on their own. If, if you look at whether it's metrics or other types of qualities in terms of the engagement of their audience, what do you, what do you think are the key barometers of when someone's, when someone's ready to, to go solo? I've talked a little bit about this, but basically like I'm a very risk averse person. So when I was doing the math before leaving fortune to me, like success meant I would make, I would match my salary at fortune doing, doing the newsletter. So basically I backed into the math. How many people do I have right now? How many are paying? What's the the growth trajectory if I do this for a full year? So I kind of mapped it out and I, I knew exactly how many paid members I needed to do it full time. But what you kind of fail to account for is that when you leave, 100% of your time is dedicated to this thing. So you'll add more value, you'll create more original content, all that kind of stuff. So it actually like grows much more than you would think, but I would always be more conservative. And the other probably biggest lesson that I've learned aside from the consistency thing is that When I was working at these big media organizations, I always thought that I was at a safe, secure job. Like I always thought I have uh, health insurance, I have benefits, like I'm I'm set. But as we've all seen in this room, we've all Mm -hmm. seen the media cycles. We've all seen our colleagues get laid off with, with like really, really talented people. So it's pretty egotistical to think that that could have never happened to me. So when the pandemic hit, I kind of thought to myself and I was like, hold on a second. All this time I've been thinking, oh, I have a safe, secure job, but my entire income came from one place. If I ever got fired or laid off, there goes my entire revenue stream. When you're independent, you can kind of create something for yourself that's more a la carte. So you can make money from direct subscriptions. You can do advertising if you want. You can do sponsorships. You can freelance, which I did for the hustle and the hustle included a link to the profile you could do a licensing deal you could do all these different things so like if one thing dries up you have four others and, it, and it's not just like a put all your eggs in one basket type of thing so i think that's kind of the the biggest lesson that i've learned in all this i think the big couple things is yeah maybe too obvious but like an existing network is incredibly important obviously Substack and now review and stuff like this piggyback on top of, of Twitter. And just the reality is there's an advantage to having an existing network, whether it's Twitter or just being really deep in whatever area you choose to focus on, but it isn't a sort of fair thing. Like, I mean, so it, it, it's biased towards people with existing networks. So if you're early in your career, it doesn't mean that you can't do it, but it's just going to be a lot harder. And ideally, and I think that is is incredibly important. And also, like Polina was saying, like the willingness to like develop your own sort of revenue portfolio. I do consulting and stuff. Like I'm not like doing any charging for Substack, mostly just because you have to at some point like you either have to optimize for growth or for monetization. Growth is really hard and, and anything in media takes a long time. And the stuff that like goes up and to the right and and is just this amazing rocket ship at least in my experience usually those things are they're not nearly as sustainable those are the the flimsy things that go away i'm not saying it can't happen but a lot of times what's behind that meteoric growth is not like incredibly strong content it's a bunch of like getting ahead on a, a growth hack uh 
wave and and executing you know the marketing really well rather than having having like product led growth yeah yeah or or i think just often that rocket ship growth is kind of obscures the the years and years of putting in the work and and just kind of slowly growing over time until you hit whatever that inflection point is the biggest challenge by far of a newsletter is audience development I think, I mean, like, I don't even think monetization is as big of a challenge. And besides, if you don't develop the audience, there's, there's nothing to monetize. Here. Wait, so, so Brian, do you mean that you would like Substack to kind of like, for example, show me other like audiences or sorry, other newsletters with like-minded audiences that we could do a swap with or like, what do you mean? Yes. So like they have, they should have the data. If this is anything more than just, I mean, the technology is really basic from what I can tell, but they should have the data that, that could indicate like which newsletters are good, are good connections. Like, I mean, I don't know, like, like my newsletter and your newsletter, I, they probably have different audience. I have no idea, but like they, they might not be a good overlap enough of an overlap there. Cause there has to be some overlap, right? Like, yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure they've thought about this cause I, I've thought about it. So I'm sure they've thought about it, but. But the, but the only downside is like, okay, let's say like your super popular newsletter, you get hit up all the time by all these other newsletters for doing swaps. And I think that it has to be an opt-in of some sort, because I think you do run the risk of like getting inundated nonstop. Oh yeah, definitely opt-in. But I mean, they need to be the broker if they're going to really, like the way I look at it, it's like, an ecosystem or platform has to do like a few very core things. And they do a couple of core things with on the monetization side, but only one type of monetization, which is frankly bizarre, but they don't solve the problem of discovery and distribution. I mean, think about an app store that doesn't have any sort of discovery or distribute, like that's strange. Like, yeah, I don't know. I totally agree. Yeah, they, they, they seem to be just so against any kind, anything perceived as, advertising even if that's like advertising other other newsletters within their network that yeah they miss that that big opportunity to to create more cross-pollinate audiences and their smaller smaller newsletters yeah like you would think it would behoove them to at least have some sort of like research unit of some sorts that just like feeds people between newsletters and helps like independent creators generate more revenue and on the back them generate revenue as well like even if it was just just like a straight out of the box kind of like way of like supporting sponsorships and like third party monetization, just something that helps like push audiences back and forth across the platform. I have a question here. Do you guys know if the Substack exec team actually speaks to the top Substack creators? As in like, is there an actual form of communication between them? So I met Hamish and Chris really early i i when when hamish emailed me in 2018 to say like oh come on over to substack i was like oh i've already tried three different platforms like i'm not about to go to another one just so my new like i was having really big problems with deliverability but so i turned them down and then after a while i saw that for other people deliverability was really good and i was paying monthly for my other platform and i had a free new Sutter at the time. So I was like, all right, let me just switch to this where I don't have to pay anything as long as I have a free newsletter. And I really like it. I've done the math in terms of like how much if if I was to do everything on my own back end, WordPress, like everything and Stripe integration, all that stuff, I would probably need to 
pay somebody to do it to figure out all the technical stuff. So for now, it makes sense for me to give them the 10%. I know that's like a really big sticking point for people, but I have had conversations with Hamish, but we don't talk like on a regular basis about how to grow the profile. But I think, I think they talk to people. I don't think that's a bad thing. Well, clear, clearly they they talk to some people because they've got their, their group of, of uh, Substack Pro folks out there. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, that they've kind of become the de facto place for people to go independent. But I think we're now now starting to see yeah, a, a little a bit of the blowback and and maybe with review and Twitter and and some other competitors, it will, the, the playing field will, will level a little bit more. A couple of years ago, like right when they were getting started, and he asked what it would take to get the Hustles Trends subscription over to Substack. And I kind of outlaid a few things. And he was like, well, what about the, the big email? What about the free email? And for us, there's like substantial, right? Substantial cost of like SendGrid was like probably a couple hundred thousand a year. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I told him, I was like, well, it would be a no-brainer decision if if you all had an ad network of some sort. And you have the... You, you'll have the network effect to actually make this work and have a marketplace for ads. And, and he looked at me and he was like, that's against my values. We won't do that. And I've tweeted about that before, but I think that was pretty telling uh, a little bit of like their product roadmap in the future and, and their decisions of what they're, what they're building there. Yeah. But, but now you have people kind of working around that. I mean, they haven't built it. So you have other people seeing that void and filling in. Brian, I know you have, sponsors in in the rebooting paulina do you do run any ads in in the profile yeah i've done uh, a few like sponsored posts like for example best more venture partners had a podcast and i did like a sponsored podcast thing but i haven't done like a proper sponsor the profile but in in in, by the way like i love that every conversation about newsletters kind of devolves into a a substack conversation but (laughs) but i i just coming from a place where I saw what the ad supported model meant, I am not against their thesis of this is going to be subscription based and we don't do ads. If you want to do ads, go somewhere else. But I, I, I sure. think I'm fine with that idea. Jonathan, I'm, I'm curious, it's kind of to flip that around. Obviously, a complex, such a big part of the, the brands that you built has been the talent. And most of that talent has been developed in-house with people people like Sean Evans from Hot Ones, who's like started as like a freelancer. And you, know, you have other like interns who've become big, big stars and talent. How, I mean, how do you manage kind of obviously developing talent is great, but once they become more established, keeping them incentivized and, and keeping them kind of focused on what they're doing, especially in, in today's environment where there's so much emphasis on creators being able to kind of monetize on their own and go out and, and just do their own thing. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's definitely becoming a, like a lot more competitive. And obviously, for every amazing talent, there is an amazing Netflix deal or someone that can definitely pay a lot more than you can. So I think one of the things that we've really focused on is just never letting talent get too complacent or having their feel like there's a stealing for their growth. So I, I think Sean's a great example. Sean, yeah, started as a news anchor and then was sort of given the latitude to create a pilot that was Hot Ones that then grew into what it is today. But Hot Ones 
didn't just stop as being a web series. It became a TV series and became a hot sauce line and became merch and became a physical event. And so there's all these things that Sean either shares in or as talent that doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily employed as an employee of complex, but as a talent that can be free to go on and do his own thing. You know, it gives him the flexibility that he needs while the reassurance that there's continued opportunity for him to grow within the construct of the company. So I have a, a kind of a question, a broad question for everyone. We've mostly been talking about, so newsletters, I would say, kind of text format, audience building. But me, for example, I run the largest Gen Z Slovenian podcast. And the kind of the demographic, uh, my demographic is pretty small. And even Slovenia is only 2 million people. So it's quite interesting trying to think about the ways to monetize. For example, no podcast in Slovenia is actually getting any sort of revenue. There is no sponsorships. So I'm curious, what what do you guys think is a way that one could approach a situation like that? Like, how do you perhaps do paid subscriptions or something like that in the podcast world? I think it's mostly been done through sponsorships until now. But in China, my understanding is a lot of podcasts are, are either micropayments or in some ways direct. Yeah, I do. I think most of them are. From, I know there's some other platforms kind of popping up now that are like enabling more subscriptions or like kind of like tip-based podcasts, obviously, the the Patreon type approach. Yeah. I mean, to me, it makes total sense outside. Like leave aside the, the, the tech and the friction stuff, which is obviously important and stuff. But like if you think about the dynamics of like newsletters and podcasts, to me, they're very similar. Like I know having done a podcast for for – for several, if not many years. I don't know where the line between those two are. I was always amazed at like this sort of, be, because of the like clubhouse that, but because of like this sort of intimacy of voice, it's like a creepy thing to say, but like the, like people have a connection to podcasts that to me is kind of similar to the connection that newsletters for whatever reason, because it's just a freaking web page delivered to an email inbox has. Like people feel more, connectivity to that at least that i've noticed i mean having published on like websites and in magazines and stuff like for 20 years like the kind of feedback that you get for both those formats is it's different and there's more connectivity and i feel like just like people are more willing to pay for a newsletter that is uh, created by one person that they want to support, I feel like the same thing should work in, in podcasting. I just wanted to jump in on that particular note because we just had a really interesting situation, not in a bad way, happen to us with podcast subscribers. We, we basically, the gist of it is that there was a, a content creator about a year and a half, two years ago, who we were like, this guy's a star. We want him in our wheelhouse and we see his fan base and we see the kind of DNA of what his trajectory is going to look like as a, as a content creator. And uh, we wanted him, we saw him as a very important member of the team to what we were kind of doing in our current iteration as a media company. The advertising world obviously is everybody here knows is works at its own kind of cycles and everything like that. And of course, COVID didn't hit at, or COVID hit right at the same time of this. So we were 
very much so like with our kind of agreement with him in the company, like, Hey, you have the perfect footprint for having a Patreon audience. You have a rabid fan base. You have people that really connect with you as an individual of, as what you're doing. You are your own brand. Your podcast is your own brand. And eventually the advertising world will, you know, warm up to that, which it, which it has. But in the meantime, everybody kind of jumps in and supports him as, as a, uh, on the Patreon model and such a widespread success that by kind of investing him in him early stage, he was then able to kind of take what he was doing Patreon wise and move beyond just the confines of our organization into a much deeper and broader fan base. He like doubled his overall digital footprint as a content creator in that time and is every month doubling what he sees on on Patreon. And it's just because of his podcast for the most part and how that kind of reaches out and all these other different tentacles. So I'm a I'm a huge, huge fan of that model after seeing how it can work and really kind of change the tides for someone versus what it looks like in a very clunky advertising apparatus. Hmm. I have a direct kind of question to that, Brandon. Do you maybe remember kind of the percentage-ish around like what percentage of his viewers actually converted to Patreon payers? Yeah, so it, it was a very slow ramp up. And it also involved us taking essentially his podcast from once a week as a production to a twice a week endeavor. And at first, only about like, I would say like 5% of his listenership was converting. And about six weeks in, he reached a real inflection point where we started to see like 20% growth then of it. Of course, the free public product sees more, but 20% of his listenership is now a Patreon subscriber for him. And I think a big part of that is the perks that come with outside of just being a podcast, uh, a podcast subscriber and getting content behind that paywall. We added in merch. We added in like, like a zoom happy hour type of thing where it's very kind of almost borderline like a clubhouse room type of hangout with the creator and all of that stuff just added a degree of connection to the audience that resonated to the point where people were willing to kind of straddle three different tiers of subscription base. So this is still like a bro Bible production, just using Patreon as the, the, the monetization. Started as a bro Bible production, but Patreon was so successful that we were like, you might as well just do this all on your own. Oh, got it. Got it. Wow. <laughs> so we, we incubated it to the point where we were like, it became like a now rather than it being a funding thing within our organization, we just operate on like a rep deal. So it actually has made a ton of sense to find some talent, build them up, give them a, give them income while they kind of develop. And then after the fact, have that in a place where we can make it, make it advantageous to us in the greater scheme of the advertising world. Dave, I just saw that our, our clubhouse room is competing with Mark Zuckerberg and Daniel Eck talking about Dave, you you launched an awesome site a few years ago, and and it's still going strong. And Inverse and Bleacher before that, and Brian, I, I go to Digiday every day. But 
this wonderful discussion about building audience no one's no one's brought up really websites and and i guess i i just as independent websites as opposed to things on platforms and so i wonder is that not viable anymore it feels like every like couple of years like people sort of like come out and proclaim like the website's dead or whatever it is i i mean i still think it's such an important part of not just like revenue stream but also like how you build and grow a brand especially right now i mean mobile web for us search for us makes up such a tremendous amount of how people engage with complex on a daily basis programmatic revenue direct sales video pre- like whatever it is like it's still a pretty substantial part of our business albeit it's not the largest part of our business it's still a pretty hefty hefty business line for us and so while while we are focused on trying to express our brand and our stories across multiple different platforms and multiple different formats like i like i mean we still prioritize web 100% i still believe in websites and i think that most most of what we think today as newsletters in a few years as they mature will look a lot more like just like regular websites i just think email newsletter is a great minimally viable publishing product i mean i know like with with substack like I set up on Substack because, like, it's the easiest. Like, it's just easy. You just go there and sign. It's like completely simple. But I think long term, I would I would turn it into like just like a regular newsletter and website, if only because I still and Polina maybe like I don't even know how how good like Substack is with search authority and like do you take like an SEO hit by being on like Substack? versus just having like a regular website because the top of the funnel for just about every publishing business is the SEO. The, the truth is SEO has always been, and I, I can just see it, it's like the top of the funnel. It's like you can't take a hit on SEO, but at least for a lot of like niche areas, email is like, has always been the workhorse. Yeah. Even though I do have a Substack, I am smart enough to know that SEO is important. So I do have a separate website that I kind of pull SEO to or the, the optimized for SEO so that people can discover that if in case I ever leave Substack. But the other thing is that I like working at a place like Fortune, I saw the traffic on a daily basis and I also saw how many people went to read my articles through a link in the newsletter versus typing in fortune.com every morning. Unfortunately, very few people do that. So yeah, I mean, both are important, but you got to have ways to get to your website. Yeah. And I think that approach Paulina is, is the right way to go. I think like see a lot of creators and newsletter writers just go saying they're going all in on the newsletter. And I guess with Substack, you do have, there is an archive there, but to Brian's point, like I, I agree. I don't think Substack is that great for SEO. It's your kind of, I know they, they now allow custom domains, but you're still, there's, there's probably not the, the best architecture. And, and like you said, Pauline, if you leave, then you're kind of, you're in limbo as to what happens to your archive. I, I think the best approach, certainly if you're building a publication, you have a website use email as a tool to convert your audience to to distribute things to your most loyal readers but even for a creator i think having 
a newsletter or a podcast, whatever it is that is your that is your kind of like your your channel for publishing new things, but combining that with a, a great site that is an archive of everything you do. I think that's that's how I I really get to know kind of the new independent creators that I learn about and and want to subscribe to and want to support is by probably discovering them on social or seeing something they've shared or something like that. And then finding their website and going down that rabbit hole of their archives. And there's just so much value there, whether it's through SEO or just through creating that discoverability for, for anyone who, who wants to learn more about them. I've always wondered why Digiday publishes everything at midnight. So here's the secret story. When I started Digiday, we didn't have our domain. It was called digidaydaily.com. And like March X was squatting on the domain and, and wanted $25,000, which was approximately $24,500 more than we were willing to pay March X. So this had a kind of role with Digiday Daily. I thought it was like a brand issue, like with like, it just because like Digiday was an events company. So it just used email in order to, as an excuse to market the events. So it had like a list, but like it was very events driven for, for promotion and marketing. So we just decided to figure out how to differentiate. And particularly as we like added people, like I like the idea because this is the time everyone was like fast metabolism and, and, and mashable and Huffington Post was saying it was publishing 28,000 articles a day and stuff. And I knew that we had to differentiate and, and the way to force differentiation, it was like a bet with people. It was like, so here's the good news. Like you just, you used to work at it at IB times and you had to write seven stories a day before noon, before you were allowed to eat lunch. You only have to do one story a day and it's not, it's not every day really, but that story has got to be totally different from everything else. And a way to force the differentiation was like, we're just going to publish it at midnight. So you couldn't just regurgitate whatever was popping on Twitter or whatever, because you're going to have to differentiate. So it was just mostly like a, it was somewhat of a strategy, but it was also just like a quirk of also not having a domain. But then we just kept going with it. That makes a lot more sense. Okay. Yeah. But at the Wall Street Journal, is like, let me get this straight. You have a website and you act like you're a newspaper. It's like, that's right. Unorthodox, my friend. So that, that just reminds me, though, of something that that we we did a lot at Inverse. And this came from one of our, our odd dev guys, Michael Cahill, who was... He was Brilliant guy who's with me at Bleacher Report and Inverse and BDG. He he used to do like heat maps of when stories, both stories that that we published, and then looking at like competitors and like when both publishing times and then for our our own what we had in terms of when the most successful stories were published. And he would like identify these like hot zones of publishing times of when like the most successful stories were published on average. And they tended to be like these very random, like super late at night or super, super early in the morning times. And the, the whole theory around them is just, it's, it's lack of competition. You're, you're when, when everyone else is asleep and none of the competitors are publishing, you put something out there and it, it gets a little bit more preference in Google's algorithm or whatever, because it's it's the only thing the only new thing at that time and it, it was it was really interesting it worked we did we had all sorts of like we would we would schedule things to go live at different times unless they were breaking news and just see them pop off based off uh, all those heat maps 
I'm going to revise my answer, John, and say that we used heat maps and like a lot of data analysis. That's the money ball. Money. It's really interesting hearing Josh's question about websites. Is some, I mean, our 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 uh, small but very scrappy company is still very much so website first in how we view almost everything. The one thing that I wanted to kind of add on that is that discoverability is so, so, so important. And you never know how someone in the world will resonate with something that you did that happened years ago or at another moment of time. I think so much emphasis of creator culture is focused on the here and now and the things that you did within whatever the the present or a plane around the present looks like. But one of the greatest joys in my now 11 year, 11 plus year career within Bureau Bible is having people discover something that I've forgotten about and wanting to kind of talk about that and having that strike all the right things for a reader that make them want to come back and engage with the brand. That is one of the things that I just love about being a dot-com publisher and writer at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think having that kind of like lasting impact and, and an archive that people go back to and rediscover super is super uh, rewarding. And, and uh, I mean, that's it just speaks to that whole kind of cliche about consistency you put in the work over time you you build and find an audience and it's not just in the new stuff it's in the stuff that, that you did years and years ago but it's also like it's also like an annuity i mean everyone every publisher has like sort of evergreen content that that is usually their most valuable content really for like price and like effort so like we did explainers around all these programmatic ad terms Mostly as an experiment to see if we could to, to figure out our evergreen content strategy and, and all those explainers, not all of them, but just about all of them. We rank like, or we Digiday ranks like top of like, if you like, what is programmatic advertising? What is the demand side platform and stuff? These days we're not, I mean, they're, they're well, they're nicely done and stuff like this, but like the amount of value, like every month we would hit these people with like a, a balance exchange to like download the full guide. They sort of already pre-qualified themselves as a, a valuable audience member because they're, I mean, who the hell else is interested in demand side platforms. And so every month that was like an annuity of 2000 to 3000 new direct connections without creating anything. I mean, that's incredibly valuable. Paulina, do you have any, or any of your profiles kind of the ones that have just become like, long time just more popular over time or really kind of blown up after the fact there are a few like i did one on elon musk that's consistently done well and charlie munger but the one on the rock that he tweeted that one it's really interesting because you think like oh the rock tweeted it or whatever posted on instagram that's going to get a ton of conversions I gained a lot of Twitter followers, but it wasn't as dramatic uh, of a subscription craze as you would think. Sure. But that was something he, he kind of discovered it well after the fact and tweeted it? No. 
so I didn't think it was my best dossier. So I published, I decided to publish it on uh, Christmas day, but like I tagged him on Twitter and I guess he saw it. So he like read it, liked it, shared it, retweet. It was crazy. It was awesome, but crazy. A very good Christmas. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome.